Well, it's time for our uh, uh, study of the Bible once again, which we do every Sunday morning. And this week we are back to a series that we've been uh, uh, pursuing, trying to understand the book of Revelation, which um, some people love uh, because it gives them lots of time to look at the intricacies and details of the images there. And some people hate and loathe and fear because they think that it's uh, totally confusing. Well, I hope we're not going to get too bogged down in intricacies because that can uh, make us lose the big picture. And I hope that we won't fear it either because uh, the message of Revelation is very, very valuable for us in our understanding. So we've got to Revelation chapter 6. And we're actually going to survey 6 and 7 in our time together. But I'm going to read to you from uh, Revelation chapter 6. Just to set it in context, uh, chapters 4 and 5, if you've been uh, here with us, uh, in those chapters, John was taken into the the presence of God, into the throne room. And in chapter 4, he saw God as uh, supreme and seated uh, above all creation, worshipped by all creation. In chapter 5 we saw a scroll, a scroll which had seven seals on it, which could not be opened. And we said then, when we, saw, when we saw that first two weeks ago, that this scroll represents the fulfillment of all God's purposes for his world. God intends to judge evil and to save his people. And only the lamb that looked as if it had been slain which of course is Jesus, could uh, fulfill God's great purposes for the world because only he has died for our sins so that we can be forgiven. Then we see in chapter 6, the scroll starts to be opened. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked before me and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery, fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. And then the lamb opened the third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked before me, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over the fourth of the earth to kill by sword and famine and plague, by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? 
Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed, as they had been, was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. And the sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Let's pray. Lord, we ask, as we've uh, asked many times before, that you would help us to understand this, your word, especially uh, in areas that uh, contain visions and images that sometimes are not familiar to us. We pray that you would uh, give us understanding. And Lord, that through that understanding you would stabilize our lives, that we would be people who have a firm confidence in you, We would be people who understand this world, know clearly what it's about, but more than anything else, Lord, people who know and love you more deeply. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. God does not play dice. Those words were repeatedly used by um, the great physicist Albert Einstein, actually, to discuss uh, a new science called uh, quantum physics. According to um, another great physicist called Heisenberg, the precise structure and position of atoms was to some extent random and unpredictable. The theory, uh, or at least part of the theory, was called Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And Einstein hated that idea because he believed in a consistent God who orders everything perfectly, a God who actually is not governed by chance and uncertainty. So whenever the subject came up, he used to uh, dismiss it with these words, God does not play dice. Well, most of us here are not concerned with the details of theoretical physics, but I think it is vitally important for us to consider whether or not, to to use Einstein's memorable phrase, God plays dice with the souls of his people. It's that very well-known song by um, Christa Berg, or at least well-known to me, which describes God and the, uh, the devil sitting on a train playing poker for the souls of human beings. And sometimes God is, uh, frankly, dealt a duff hand and loses. Sometimes uh, uh, he's uh, dealt a brilliant hand and wins. And the message of that, uh, that song is, well, God's doing the best he can 
in the end, he's just the, uh, uh, the victim of the lay of the cards. The dice right to roll badly in the end. And then, of course, our souls will be eternally lost, won't they? On Tuesday morning of uh, this last week, there were, there were possibly there were, there were 90 people for whom the dice rolled tragically badly, weren't there? 90 people uh, or thereabouts who died in the Paddington Rail crash. And uh, incidents like that always raised the question, why? How could God do that? One of the answers that always comes up is the answer though, that maybe God just, just has no control. Maybe there are, there are forces of chance out there. Maybe Heisenberg's uncertainty principle works for wider things than just the uh, subatomic structures. Maybe God, in fact, does have to play dice. It's actually a major question in the book of Revelation for uh, John. Up to now, John has been uh, shown and has shown us a basically uh, pretty clear, big sketch of God's purposes and the way that God deals with this world. Jesus, in chapter 1, is in control of his church. In chapter 4, God is in control of the whole world. In chapter 5, Jesus is going to bring about God's great purposes for judgment and salvation. And the scene is set, isn't it? I mean, you could end Revelation at the end of chapter 5. You could just uh, jump straight to uh, uh, the last couple of chapters and uh, uh, you would conclude about this world, just as uh, is said about the car, everything is worked out beautifully. But you see, there are a, a difficult number of chapters between the end of Revelation chapter 5 and the beginning of Revelation 21. John wants us to see what actually happens in the real world to make this vision which God is determined will one day come true, that has been described in chapters 4 and 5, come true in reality. And that's what uh, starts to be revealed, you see, in chapters 6 and uh, 7. The seals start to be broken on this scroll. The scroll starts to be opened. John is going to uh, see what it's like to be living in the time between Christ's death and resurrection and the time when God finally sorts all things out and Jesus comes again and the new heaven and the new earth come. And the first thing in chapter 6 that John is going to show us, because John was shown himself very clearly, is that frankly, in that time, the world is a mess. That's what uh, chapter 6 is, is, is telling us, in, in essence. Jesus, the Lamb, begins to break these scrolls. And uh, as he breaks each, of the, uh, uh, breaks each of the seals to open the scroll, one of the living creatures, these angelic uh, figures that uh, are near the throne, cries, come. And you think, Jesus is coming. It's going to be all sorted out. It's all going to be wound up lovely. 
But actually, uh, what comes is not Jesus at all. No, uh, the first seal is broken, and out comes a horse and a rider, and then another, and then another, and then another. The four horses of the apocalypse, as they've been called. The first horse we learn in uh, chapter 2 is white. It signifies conquest. It signifies the insatiable appetite that people have to overcome one another. The second horse is red. It signifies war and violence. People kill each other to overcome one another. The third horse is black. Its its rider holds a pair of scales for measuring out food because it represents famine. There is real starvation that happens as a result of those things. The fourth fourth horse is pale, we learn, the colour of fear or the colour of death itself. It signifies, says John, death, and it is followed close behind by Hades or hell, the terrible place where those who do not follow Christ are destined to go. Some people have tried to see in these uh, successive seals perhaps successive periods in history, but I don't think that's the case. Others have suggested that these are events that are just happening in the last few years before Jesus comes again. But again, I'm not persuaded by that. I think it's much more uh, persuasive, in fact, to uh, see these seals as just revealing more and more and more about what is going on in this world. When we get to the end of them, when we get to the last few, we start to see more clearly that uh, the world is ready for Jesus to come at any time, at any moment. But these are not strictly sequential. No, they are describing the whole of the period of the last days. And that so far has lasted 2,000 years since Jesus died on the cross and will last for however much longer it takes for Jesus to come again. It's describing the world now. First of the seals then describes uh, conquest. Second one, war. The third one, famine. Fourth one, death. John's saying, do you want to see what's going on in the world? Mankind's fighting. Do you want to see more of what's going on in the world? Mankind's killing each other. Do you want to see more? Mankind is creating famine. Do you want to see more? Mankind is creating death. Actually, uh, it's the living creatures that uh, commissioned these terrible horses out into the world. If you remember, uh, those living creatures uh, correspond to the, the created world. They are the sort of angelic counterparts of, of, uh, of the created world. Now, people are very acutely aware in today's world that uh, we have raped and pillaged this world and destroyed it in so many words, uh, in, in, in so many different ways. Well, perhaps it's no surprise then to the modern mind that from God's perspective, the angels which represent our damaged world wreak their vengeance upon mankind through these terrible uh, horses. It's a terrible thought to think that war and famine and plague may at the spiritual level be, be a... a a, a deep reaction of this world to mankind's failure and sin. 
These forces, though, are not completely out of control. They are still under the control of Christ. He opens the seals. But he seems to distance himself from the events themselves as if they are some awful necessity which nevertheless he doesn't want to wholly identify himself with. You'll find in Revelation it's only when the final judgment comes, only when, when uh, God finally uh, judges things perfectly and with equity that Jesus comes in person and reveals his face. Until then, he is always distanced to a certain extent from the things that are going on in this world, even though there may be an element of judgment in them. Meanwhile, he does moderate the power of these horses and their riders. When the black horse uh, brigs famine, for instance, another voice cries out, a quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. It's most likely that that's the voice of Jesus. It seems to come from among the living creatures. And it pronounces the price of the food. That price is very elevated, but it is not so much that people can't feed themselves. People can still buy enough food for a day. Horrible though these uh, sufferings are, Jesus is limiting them. Or... Um, uh, Look on to uh, 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 the fifth seal. We start to see uh, more profoundly the uh, terrible things that are, are going on because as the fifth seal is opened, this time we see the martyrdom of believers. These, uh, the souls of these, uh, uh, these believers are under the altar because uh, in the Old Testament uh, temple, the blood of sacrifices was poured out under the altar, and their blood has been poured out. Characteristic of Revelation, actually, that the normal fate of believers is martyrdom. Again and again, we, we see that John is saying to Christians, accept death as a normal consequence of your faith. He's not saying that he expects everyone to die. He's not a, some David Koresh uh, uh, whipping up his people to a suicidal frenzy in uh, Waco, Texas. But he has meditated long and hard on those words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. He knows that taking up your cross is not just accepting a bit of discomfort. It is accepting death. As Martin Luther King used to say, you haven't found a faith worth living for until you have found a faith worth dying for. And John wants to tell us that. The terrible truth that uh, John wants us to take on board is that in addition to all these terrible things, war and famine and death, there is the personal hostility of people against believers to deal with in this world. And that battle is every bit as bloodthirsty as the Balkans or East Timor. It doesn't always show in itself in martyrdom. But the fact that there are Christian martyrs is a, it stands as a constant reminder to us that a real Christian faith is always opposed and opposed violently. I mean, you may think that martyrs no longer happen 
in today's world. Now you think that people know longer that's not true. In fact, uh, there are more people at the moment dying for their faith in Christ than at any other time in history. In uh, many Muslim countries today, to publicly convert to Christianity is to face the real possibility of death. I read just one uh, little story recently of a young teenage girl in a Muslim country who heard about Jesus from a school friend and instantly she committed her life to Jesus and she was, she was so excited and so filled with joy that she, she ran home immediately and told her parents about her new Christian faith and they beat her to death. In the West we don't like to think that Christians get martyred. But they do. In their thousands, they do. That's the world we live in. And John says, their souls cry out for judgment. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, is this sub-Christian malice? No. This is a legitimate longing for final justice to come, for the mess that this world is in to be sorted out. And these, uh, uh, these martyred believers are given two things. First, they are given a white robe that we will see more of in just a minute, a symbol that God has set them apart for himself. And then they are given a an instruction. They are uh, uh, told in verse 11, wait a little longer until the number of your fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as you have been has been completed. It's not over yet. There is a little longer to be endured. There are more martyrs yet. For 2,000 years now, the cry has been going up, how long? And the answer has been, wait a little longer. And so finally, the sixth of these seven seals uh, is opened. And now we start to get to the real heart of, of what God is going to do in this world. We have seen all the mass. We have seen the, uh, the hostility to people of faith that will go on throughout that period. But now it seems that we're coming almost inside of the end. And here we're told it will get worse before it gets better. There is an earthquake as uh, we've seen uh, uh, more recently, um, earthquakes in the region of Turkey where this letter was sent are common and very frightening. Then uh, uh, there is a solar eclipse. The, t the sun turns black. People who were in Cornwall uh, over, over the summer will tell you how disconcerting it is suddenly to have, have uh, almost pitch darkness thrust upon you, even when you know exactly what is happening. Then there is a lunar eclipse. The, the moon turns red in lunar eclipses. Actually, one of the medieval kings of Europe dropped down dead when he saw a lunar eclipse. He was so frightened. 
And there is a massive meteor shower, the, the stars fall. All of these images John is giving these people to, to show them how absolutely terrifying this world will get. But then he says it will be far beyond natural phenomena, far beyond what you've actually seen. He says, uh, he says in fact, in, in verse 14, the sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. When the end comes, when the new heaven and the new earth is about to, uh, about to be created, the uh, level of destruction will be absolutely terrifying. And on that day... Those who are opposed to God will begin, uh, uh, who begin to see what God is doing, will be utterly terrified. Verse 15 The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man, man hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? As Robert Maxwell would tell you, just before he jumped into the sea, there is something more terrible than death. It is exposure. It's having all the false sham that we have built around our lives displayed to the world more terrifyingly displayed to God. These rulers and warriors and rich and mighty, these slaves and free, are not so much terrified of death. They're terrified of facing Jesus. They would rather have a billion tons of rock fall on them in the vain hope that it could cover them than face Jesus than face the wrath of the Lamb. This is the world we live in as it waits for the end, says John. You know, as I go on longer in uh, Christian ministry, I get more and more tired of the superficial rubbish that so often gets passed off as Christian truth. We are reluctant to face up to the extent to which mankind's sin has corrupted this world. The first four of those, those seals tell us that, 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 that at the level of the angels there is a terrible and murderous drama being played out on the earth because of that corruption. And who can doubt it? Who can doubt it when we look at the news? Who, who can doubt it when we see a, 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 a train plough into another train and kill dozens of people? Who can doubt it when we see people who'd lived in peace for a, for, a, for a generation or more suddenly starting to murder each other? Who can doubt that there are powerful forces out there combined with mankind's sinfulness which cause awful, awful destruction? The Bible's quite clear about it. And I get tired as well about the superficiality of the call to follow Christ. You know, what a cruel parody of the gospel we so often hear. Come to Jesus and your illnesses will be healed. Come to Jesus and you will be made rich. Come to Jesus and you'll have a few friends. 
And Dietrich Bonhoeffer got it right. When Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. That's what John is telling us. John is telling us what Jesus told us and what all great saints in history have learned. That you cannot follow Jesus unless you love Jesus more than life itself. Unless this life, uh, in, in your own experience, becomes of far less value than the eternal life that God calls you to. Now, I think uh, often that Christianity is naively superficial about the, the depravity of this world, about the cost of discipleship, and about the, the horror that will accompany God finally sorting things out. Christianity is superficial about it, but the Bible never is. And if we're honest, when we compare the Bible with the real world that we see, we see that it makes sense. We see that suddenly, in fact, far from Christianity being some um, a naive superstition that historically we need to abandon and get rid of because it doesn't fit with the real world, we see that it speaks to the real world and helps us understand the real world and helps us live in the real world in a way that, that all other beliefs just uh, cannot do. Because it really makes us see what this world is about. It really makes us open our eyes and say, Rwanda was not a great surprise. Bosnia was not a great surprise. Uh, people getting killed in a train crash was no great surprise if we really understand this world. This world is a mess. But you see, there is something then that comes uh, into Christians' minds and people's minds that uh, is very, very disturbing. If this world is such a mess, am I really as secure as I'd like to think I am? If people can uh, get on a, on a train at 8 o'clock on a Tuesday morning thinking that they are going to work and will be going to work every day for, the, for uh, uh, a decade or more on that train, and in fact find that their life ends ten minutes later in an inferno, if there are those uncertainties about life, what about our Christian life? What about our faith? Well, you see, uh, John's wanting to say two things to us. And the first thing is, be aware that there are massive forces out there that would drag you away from your faith, would take away your assurance, would take away your relationship with God, if it were possible. But be aware, too, of something even more powerful. This world is a mess, but he moves in chapter 7 to say very clearly, Christian believers are absolutely secure. That's why there's this, um, this interlude between the uh, opening of the sixth and the seventh seals. You see, John's very, very well aware that he has painted a pretty terrifying picture. And he knows that uh, some of the people that he, uh, he, 
he has been speaking to have not even started thinking about that. If you read the letters to uh, uh, the, the individual churches in chapters 2 and 3, some of them felt very content and very secure, like they were perfectly all right. He knows they will be profoundly shocked. But God has given him another vision which fits in at this vital point. God has given him a vision of God himself setting a seal upon people's foreheads. That seal marked his ownership, his ownership of his servants. Look at uh, chapter 7 then. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God, He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. In other words, to to give even more destruction. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 and so on. Just as John, remember, heard about the victorious uh, lion of the tribe of Judah in chapter 5, so he hears about this great number. This is actually a great and perfect army. Whenever Israel was counted in the Old Testament, it was always counted for battle, for purposes of raising an army. And this, then, is a perfect number of warriors, 12 thousand warriors from each of the twelve tribes of Israel. God has placed his seal, John is learning, on a perfect number of people, a perfect number of people who will win the victory in this messy world. God is not going to be thwarted. He has got an army who will one day be victorious. But then remember in chapter 5, John turned around to look at that lion of Judah, that great, mighty, victorious warrior that had been described. And when in chapter 5, John turned to look at the lion, he found that it was actually a humble lamb. So now he turns to look at this perfect army of 144,000. And what does he see? Not 144,000, but an innumerable number. Not warriors this time, but people who are celebrating the victory of the Lamb by waving palm branches. People who are rejoicing in the fact that God himself has won the victory. Verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, thousands of years ago, Abraham had been promised uh, descendants as countless as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And so they will be, says John. They will be innumerable to our eyes, even if they are a perfect number when we hear about them. Not one of them is missing. 
There is no gap in the ranks. There is no, going to be no empty seat at the banquet table in heaven. God has saved everyone, the number he intended to save, that we can't count, but he can. All the angels, verse 11, were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. There is praise for all eternity in the throne room because God has saved his perfect number. And then it's almost as if John um, is a bit dense. It's almost as if uh, they wonder, these angels, whether in fact John has really caught on to what is going on. So um, one, of the, one of the elders, which is a, a, an angelic figure, sort of steps aside in verse 13. One of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. John's a bit wary about explaining it himself. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. That, that uh, means nothing more than the trials of this world during the whole uh, period between Christ's resurrection and his final coming again. These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they have hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God is not playing dice with his people. This world may be terribly confusing. History may ring with the prayers of martyred saints crying out to God, how long? But God has not left any person's salvation to chance. Now the Christians here this morning, I want to say to you, be realistic about this world, but be optimistic too. If you're a true believer, you will be in heaven there where there is no thung hunger, no thirst, no tears, where God wipes away every tear from our eyes. This is a world which is confusing. This is a world that has tragic accidents. This is a, this is a world that, uh, that has all sorts of things going on which could rock our faith. But God tells us these things will go on and he tells us that if you are a believer, God has set his seal of ownership upon you and he will save you, though you may be martyred. Though you, we cannot uh, grasp assurance that anything in this life will be kept from us, even death. But he has placed his ownership on us and he will keep us in all eternity. 
There may well be people who are not yet uh, at all confident that they have faith in God, that they are secure in heaven. Well, to you that I say, take seriously what God says about this world. God says it is a messy, terrible place, but he says that in the end, there is going to be a judgment upon every single person without fail. The mighty are fleeing the wrath of the Lamb at the end of chapter 6, and so is every slave and free. No one will escape the gaze of Christ. In fact, at the end of chapter chapter. Uh, six, everyone is calling to the mountains and the rock, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Final exposure is worse than death. Unless, that is, we've been supplied with a white robe. There's actually an amazingly... uh, paradoxical little picture which I'm sure you notice because it, it, it jumps out and, and, and hits you. Verse uh, uh, 14 of chapter 7. These people in the white robes. They are the people who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Quite extraordinary, isn't it? How can someone uh, uh, take their clothes, place them, dip them in blood, and they come out white? Now you see, the blood of the Lamb, of course, is Jesus' shed blood, his death on the cross. And there is something equally miraculous about that. Because Jesus was not dying for his own sins, he was dying for the sins of others. And by some incredible transaction, people who come to Jesus, people who seek his forgiveness, people who say, please, Jesus, forgive me, find that. He bore our sins in himself, on the cross, that he shed blood that should have been shed by us when God comes to judge all things. And because he, the Son of God, has paid for our sins, when finally God comes to judge, when finally the Lamb comes to judge, we do not need to flee, to hide because of our sins. We can stand and say to Jesus himself, You paid for my sins. I have this white robe to prove it because I ask for your forgiveness. You haven't sought Jesus' forgiveness yet. You haven't uh, seriously examined yourself and sensed your need you haven't discovered the willingness that Christ has to people who go to him to forgive. And I urge you to do it soon. Do it now. Because this world is a messy place. Because this world is a tragic place. 
and because one day Jesus will judge every single sin. Only those who have had their sins placed on Jesus' shoulders can be assured of salvation. Oh Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would come to each one of us this morning and that first of all you would open our eyes as uh, John's eyes were opened to the terrible drama that is working itself out on this earth. We catch glimpses of it, Lord, again and again when we see uh, tragedies and disasters. But then we forget that these are the large-scale consequences of our sin. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us a realistic assessment of this world and of our place in it. And then, Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us in our hearts with sincerity to seek your forgiveness and to enjoy the assurance that comes from knowing that your seal is placed upon us. Please, Lord, we pray for each one of us here. Give us that new life that comes from being clothed in white robes. Give us that assurance that we will be amongst that innumerable throng. For those who are so not yet there, Lord, help us to take that step clearly and positively and to follow you. We ask it in Christ's name.